Hello and welcome to The Late Sub, a new weekly podcast where we break down the ins and the outs of the biggest news in women's sports. I am your host, Claire Watkins. You may know me from my years of soccer coverage, both the NWSL and the U.S. Women's National Team, but I've also been the primary author of the Just Women's Sports newsletter since 2021. And the idea of the podcast is whether you're a casual fan or have been following women's sports news for a while, the show is meant to carry the conversation forward. Today's just going to be me. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories of the week, but we're planning on having guests on in the future to make this the most comprehensive show in women's sports. The idea is we'll record on Mondays after weekend action to release every Wednesday. It is now Monday, February 5th. We're excited to get started. Lots of stuff to talk about. Let's dive in. So to start, we're going to start with talking about college basketball. College basketball season is in full swing. We're actually kind of in the home stretch of the conference uh, part of the season. Regular season runs through the first weekend of March. Then we have conference tournaments. Then we have NCAA tournaments. Teams have been in the middle of conference play, battling out for regular season conference titles and for conference tournament seating. And obviously everyone can go to ESPN and check out all the bracketology changes daily. We've seen some really good battles so far. But where I want to start, since this is the first episode of the show, and we're going to look at some big picture stuff today, probably get a little bit more into the weeds as we keep going, because we're jumping into a story in the middle, right? But let's start with the AP Top 10 that just came out today on Monday, February 5th, just to give everyone a breakdown on where some of these top teams sit right now. So in number one, we have South Carolina. People might know them. They won the national title a couple years ago. They are perennially in the top five. They are the only undefeated team left in Division I basketball, despite replacing all five of their starters from last year. What South Carolina, what Don Staley has done is incredible. They are the cream of the crop. They're at the top here at number one. Number two, we have Iowa. Number three, NC State. Number four, Colorado. Number five, Ohio State. Number six, Stanford. Number seven, Texas number eight, Kansas State, number nine, UCLA, number 10, USC. We'll expand this a little bit to hit some of the bigger names. Number 11, UConn, number 12, Notre Dame, number 13, LSU, 14, Indiana, 15, Louisville. And we'll leave it there for right now, just because we got a lot to talk about here. So South Carolina is at the top. They are the unanimous number ones. They've yet to drop a game. Number two through 10 has been a little bit less conclusive pretty much throughout the entire season. There's some talk of maybe the number two ranking being a little bit cursed. We've seen a number of teams rise to number two, and then they immediately lose. Some of this is because we're seeing teams struggle with injury. We're seeing some teams struggle to problem solve. Maybe they drop a random game against an unranked team. Maybe they're just a casualty of their own tough scheduling. They're playing another really good team. Someone has to win or lose that game. But we're also seeing teams with particular strengths and weaknesses rise and then maybe struggle. We see some of the fundamentals begin to crack a little bit, but Iowa rising back up to number two, they were number three last week. They suffered an overtime loss to Ohio state a couple weeks ago that dropped them back down. They have one of the biggest stars in the sport in Caitlin Clark. But what I like about this is I do think it reflects the parody that we're seeing this season. There is no definitive ranking of like this top five. We're seeing things change regularly. We're seeing teams maybe with a couple more losses on their record, but maybe they're playing in a particularly difficult conference like the Pac-12. We're seeing teams be rewarded for gutting through some of these conference games and not dropping games. Seeing uh, perennial contenders like UConn struggle with a lot of injuries, seeing LSU kind of struggle with their directions. So the top 10 is very interesting to me expected to change multiple times going forward. 
But going into the big stars now of college basketball, where things stand. And we got a little bit lucky this week because some of the biggest names of the last weekend are also some of the biggest names of the whole season. And I think where we have to start with, and and this might be old news to people who have been following the newsletter for some time or people who have been following college basketball for a while, is Caitlin Clark. Iowa senior Caitlin Clark. So at this point in the season, she is 65 points away from breaking Kelsey Plum's all-time career scoring record for Division I women's basketball. And she also leads Division I in scoring, averaging 32.4 points per game. So where that sits her right now is at her current scoring rate, she is likely to break the record either in two games, which is a game away in Nebraska, or in three, which is a home game against Michigan. Uh, Everyone can start placing their bets now on whether or not Iowa will try to maybe do a little bit of strategic subbing against Nebraska maybe to make it a a, a record breaker at home. That might be a nice thing for them to do. We will see. Clark has always been good. Everyone knows that she's a sharp shooter. She basically can shoot from anywhere on the court. She's actually an underrated passer almost. She's in the top five in assists as well in Division I. But she's recently been on a tear in a way that makes you kind of wonder if maybe she would just like to get this record out from under her. She scored over 30 or 30 or more points in her last six games. And with that sort of rise in play from Clark, Iowa has also looked about as dangerous in in recent weeks as they did when they went all the way to the NCAA title game last season, which is interesting because I think a lot of people question about Iowa. Is Iowa a real contender with the other players they have on that team, or are they just the Caitlin Clark show? What happens when we break the records and we get into March? I think there's also something to be said for the fact that Clark is in terms of draw in attendance. People are talking about how she's a player that transcends the sport. We see this from time to time. Generationally, she's drawn huge crowds. I think the, the, the largest crowd so far this season was for the exhibition game that was held at the outdoor football stadium in Iowa, The second highest and the highest indoor was at Ohio State when they played Iowa. Clark is must-see TV, and she's a must-attend game. And that's also very exciting for some of the larger things that she's doing with the sport. Now, we'll keep talking about uh, Record Watch a little bit later. But there are some other bigger picture things with Clark that I think people are interested in, especially as the weeks tick off. And maybe she does pass this record, and maybe Iowa does do well in the NCAA tournament. Things like she's a fourth-year senior. She will have the ability to retain her eligibility for one more year due to COVID next year. She could come back to Iowa, or she could register for the WNBA draft. If she does so, pretty people are pretty confident that she will be the consensus number one pick for the WNBA draft. There's been some misinformation. I think, again, you see things sometimes break containment in women's sports, and people talk about things that... They haven't been in the weeds as much with what things look like for the landscape for athletes and women's sports. Things like NIL deals, will they carry with her? Obviously, national deals will. Um, Regional ones, if she goes to Indiana, who has the number one pick in the WNBA draft, you think those would also follow her. Questions of, does she want to break the scoring record or does she want to shatter it so that it can never be broken ever again? Does she want to hold that record forever? Questions of, what are her goals for raising her level and raising uh, her competition level so that she can continue to chase records and accolades as a professional. Um, so Clark at this moment is the star of the show 
And she is the biggest singular storyline, I think people will agree, of this particular season of NCAA basketball. However, we saw another performance this weekend that was equally as incredible and I think should make people excited not only to follow this season of college basketball, but many to come, which is Juju Watkins, the freshman out of USC. She's 18 years old, and she looks and feels like the face of a new generation of players coming into college basketball. There's a freshman class that has, they've been scoring, they've been assisting, they've been playing great defense. It's really exciting to see the sport move forward in this way, to see these freshmen come in. Watkins herself was the number one recruit coming out of her high school senior class. She scored 51 points against Stanford on Friday which means that she already now holds the record for most points scored in a single USC women's basketball game. She's already flown past the record for games of 30 or more points per game uh, as a freshman. That record was originally whole. You might recognize the name by the great Lisa Leslie. She's like second in points per game on the season, only behind Clark as a freshman. And USC still feels like a project in their early stages. They have one of the top recruiting classes coming in next year as well. They are building around Watkins. And I think what's really exciting is not only is she stepping into the role that they they want her to step into for them, she is already looking like someone who, you know, we're talking about Clark. We're talking about a senior. We're talking about someone who is getting ready to leave the league. And then immediately we're seeing this new freshman class come in and you're already thinking to yourself, well, what can they achieve in four years? And Watkins' success is not, like I said, an anomaly, nor is she alone. She's maybe the biggest name got the big program, scoring the most points, 51 points, is the high uh, across Division One for the season so far. But other freshmen have taken college basketball by storm as well. You've got Notre Dame's Hannah Hidalgo, South Carolina's Malaysia Fulwiley, you've got Texas's Madison Booker, LSU's Michaela Williams, and more. These girls are coming in, and they are not afraid of anything, and they each have their own special, unique talents. Like Hidalgo is a menace on defense. The way that she can block and the way that she can steal is pretty incredible. Full Wiley, she's the high, she can do highlight real plays, but she can also do basic fundamentals that get her team back into it. South Carolina is so difficult to break down and so difficult to beat. And you can't place too much on one freshman class in one moment, but I was struck if we're doing kind of big picture stuff. You know, we talk about how college basketball, we're already having this discussion of is college women's basketball overtaking the WNBA in popularity? How are these stars translating to the professional game? And we talk about college basketball like it's arrived, and it's arriving, 100%. But it was only a couple years ago that we were having the conversation of, can women's basketball use March Madness branding? Do they deserve to have the same facilities, the same weight room as the men's tournament? What does that look like? How are we investing in women's basketball versus men's basketball and while the sport has grown immensely, and I've, you know, I, I hit again on just some of the top programs and the top names, we're seeing parity rise in real time. Dynasties, I mean, we talk about South Carolina. I think that you can call that a dynasty at this point, the way that they keep rising to the top, even when they're not expected to. But people remember the UConn dynasties of the past. We're seeing some of that be chipped away a little bit. The parity across, I, you, I want to say league, across the sport is really impressive. We're seeing different programs be able to recruit different talents and scout better. And we're seeing girls come up with better resources, better specializations. And I think that while we talk about Clark's achievements, 
I'm just really excited for what comes next. So that's some of the high level stuff in college basketball. We'll get more into the weeds as we go on. Like I said, we've got tournaments coming up. We've got conference tournaments, NCAA tournaments, but tap in. We've got some great conference matchups coming up and a couple more non-conferences to watch. That's the high level stuff on college basketball. We'll keep checking in with that as it goes on. We'll obviously keep an eye on Clark. We'll keep an eye on top programs. And now let's switch over to soccer. Do you want to dive deeper into women's sports news of the week? You can get the latest news delivered straight into your inbox. That's right. You can start your morning off right five days a week with the Just Women's Sports newsletter, our free daily newsletter that brings you the latest and greatest in women's sports. Whether it's breaking news, exclusive conversations, or just a cool stat that you might be missing, we've got you covered. So never miss a story on women's sports. You can subscribe for free at justwomensports.com backslash newsletter. That's justwomensports.com backslash newsletter. And we'll see you in your inbox. Okay, so now we're going to pivot over. We're out of a season and moving into a preseason. We're going to talk NWSL. The NWSL is in the second full week of its preseason. Uh, teams started getting back into camps last week of January, first week of February. We're seeing teams make trips to warm weather because it's chilly here in the United States in many different areas. And this gives us a chance to take, again, another nice kind of high-level look at the NWSL offseason, which, to the league's credit, has really become a year-round conversation, which for me, I, I've been covering the league for a while now, and I remember when things would really go dark. You know, you would play the NWSL championship. You'd maybe have some trades happen. Things would go quiet around the holidays, maybe pick up in earnest around draft day, which is usually the first or second week of January. With free agency coming in, the the, the league saw its second year of free agency in the offseason Things have really exploded in a way that I think is fun to see. We're seeing player agency. We're seeing good deals being struck for top talents. We're seeing signings more than we're seeing trades. Or if we do see trades, many of them are done with player input. It's been a strong offseason for the NWSL, in my opinion. I think people might be familiar with they had the suspended season in 2020. The year after that, the league was rocked with investigations of scandals at the coaching level, which had a serious impact on the league's reputation and also just the mental and emotional health of many of the players in the player pool. We saw a lot of change in 2022 pulling out of that when we had the SoCal teams come into the league, but it was not always necessarily in the most positive environment. We were seeing players having to leave clubs where they had had bad experiences and maybe moved to clubs where they've had better ones. The Southern California teams have been very successful on the field, which is very exciting. And then we move into this 2023-2024 offseason after that first year of free agency last year, and it feels kind of like we're stabilizing a little bit. And I think there are a number of factors to that. Many of them are not just about the players, though the players are obviously the the, the primary thing that people tune in for, but you look at some of the things that have opened up and some of the things that have stabilized in the NWSL and they're pretty important. One being, I think coaches, right? I think you, again, you go back to having these, these years where, where um, coaches were being dismissed due to misconduct or you had coaches being dismissed just for toxic work environments. You had coaches being dismissed for results, <laughs> which as you do in professional sports, and what we saw this offseason is either a certain amount of stability and also 
approaching other top talents who might want to come into the league. And to, to shout out some of those, the Chicago Red Stars, uh, who finished last last year, they picked up former Jamaica head coach Lauren Donaldson, who did quite well with Jamaica in the 2023 World Cup. People might remember they made it out of the group stage, which was incredible. The Washington Spirit made a huge swing. They dismissed Mark Parsons for results and uh, hired uh, Jonathan Geraldez of FC Barcelona. He will be joining the team uh, later this year after he finishes FC Barcelona's season in Europe. That's an incredible hire. That's Michelle Kang making waves 100%. We saw Laura Harvey and Casey Stoney both see their names sort of in the conversation for the new open Chelsea job because Emma Hayes is leaving to join the U.S. women's national team. But they appear to be staying put in Seattle and in San Diego. And I think that retaining top talent is just as important as attracting it. It indicates that owners are committed not only in giving coaches the salaries that they need, but also the resources that they need to succeed. I think that that's really important. We saw Angel City elevate interim manager Becky Tweed, which I think was a very strong um, strong decision. She did really well with that team in the second half of 2023. And we also saw Houston bring in Spanish coach Fran Alonso, which is just also an interesting trend where you have Geraldes, you have Juan Carlos Amaros at Gotham, and now you have Alonso. Just interesting to bring in these different perspectives into the league. So I think when you talk about signings, you have to start with what, are, what does your staff look like? How are you building out your front office? What are you promising to players in terms of knowing that if you are making the jump, especially if you're making the jump from a top European league, you're going to land in a place where you will be supported to succeed. So starting with that, that's a big one. Second is I think we have to talk about the doubling of the salary cap and the opening up of some of the finances in the league because of the new TV deal that the league struck at the end of 2023. As everybody knows, the reason why those negotiations are so important, and we will see other leagues move into that in the future, is that changes your ability to spend on salary cap. It can reopen the CBA for player compensation. It means that teams have more money to go around. And we saw the impact of that when we acknowledged some of these international signings, which we'll get to now. So the NWSL is finding an interesting niche a little bit this year in reaching out to players on some top teams in, in Europe and England and making them offers for, yes, record transfer fees. We're seeing high transfer fees. We're seeing high salaries. But the NWSL can also promise some of these players playing time where maybe they weren't getting into the starting 11 for their clubs in Europe, which is fascinating to me because I think there's always this conversation of, you know, once the NWSL loses a player like Sam Kerr in 2019, who are they bringing in? They obviously, um, there were some top European players that came in on loan post-pandemic, but what can the NWSL offer to top players for these top teams other than a competitive season and perhaps money, marketing, crowds, stuff like that? So going into some specifics, Bay FC, which is one of the new expansion sides, they will be joining the NWSL this year alongside the Utah Royals. They signed Dana Castellanos, who was with Manchester City, Asisa Oshawala, who was with FC Barcelona, and Jen Beattie, who was with Arsenal. And I think, again, with those names, these are known 
talents who have who have done well in a variety of different leagues and I think that probably works in their favor as well where Castellanos has played in both Spain and England Oshawala has played in England and then went and then went to China and then went to Spain these players are very adaptable they're very very versatile they're not afraid of new challenges and what the NWSL can offer them is a starting role a high salary hopefully and just a new place to make their mark in a growing league. We're seeing this similarly with the Portland Thorns signing Canadian international Jesse Fleming, who was originally with Chelsea. Um, Castellanos and Fleming are an interesting footnote in that those are two very high-profile players who famously did not want to participate in the NWSL draft. They both played in college in the United States. They had other options, and they took them. I think it's great for the NWSL to bring some of that talent back, but also an interesting look at the roundabout ways that you have to sign players when you do have your college players go into a draft system when they have other options, they might take the long way around. And then we're seeing other teams make smart international signings. Um, this is not uh, exhaustive by any means, but San Diego picked up Hannah Lundqvist, who is a, a Swedish international. Seattle signed Jisoo Yun, which people remember she was a, a Chelsea legend. Uh, they also picked up a couple Welsh signings. Orlando is building something really exciting with a number of Brazilian national team players who all want to go play with Marta, who wouldn't? Um, and then the newest rumor, and I don't know, perhaps by the time this comes out, there'll be more uh, reporting on this, but reporting from the BBC that Lika Martins of the Netherlands and PSG might also um, be entertaining the idea of making the jump to the, to the NWSL. So all of those names, I, I do think that the conversation will continue forever of do the parity rules, does the draft, does the salary cap, do some of these things that keep the NWSL competitive, limit their ability to sign top international talent. I think that will be relevant for as long as those rules exist. But I think that fans should feel really good about the stabilizing force of some of these organizations kind of getting their act together and who they've been able to bring in. And then... We got two other things to talk about here with NWSL and, and we're going to get to maybe the, the biggest news last, but this is probably the stuff that people are most familiar with. But we also saw some big trades. Um, Washington, the spirit, in addition to making a coaching change, they have been pretty aggressive with their, their player movement. They sent Sam Staub to Chicago and Ashley Sanchez to North Carolina on draft day. They are being bold in wanting to create the roster that they think Geraldes will do well with. Uh, Orlando sent Messiah Bright to Angel City, which was a pawn player request. They also signed Simone Charlie, who was with LA through free agency. Portland sent Rocky Rodriguez to LA, where there was some speculating that maybe that was to open up some of the, the cap and transfer space to sign Fleming. So we're seeing the trade mechanism hopefully be used. We're still seeing some friction of that with, with player agency, and I think that that's also a relevant conversation going forward. But some of those that some of that big motion, if you want to sign one player, you have to move a different one. It's a tenant of American sports, and that can really shake things up around the league as well. And then finally, let's talk free agency, because as everyone likely knows, I don't know if you don't have to be a longtime newsletter subscriber uh, to know what Gotham FC, the reigning champions of the NWSL, have been building. They signed Crystal Dunn, Tierna Davidson, Emily Sonnet, and Rose Lavelle all in free agency. They are the U.S. Women's National Team FC until further notice. They also picked up some smaller free agents, like someone like Ellis Stevens, who did well for Chicago in the past. And they also executed some trades, like they executed a trade for Seattle Reign FC defender Sam Hyatt. So Gotham is fascinating to me. I, I'm going to be real with everybody. I don't know exactly how it worked on the books. They re-signed some veteran players late. 
they did obviously send Christy Mewis out to West Ham in uh, to the WSL. So they got that off their books. They got Ali Long off their books. She left through free agency, but and they got Ali Krieger off their books, obviously through retirement. But I think it's a very different proposition to come into a season as a juggernaut as it does as an underdog. And while I cannot wait to see the juggernaut Gotham FC. I am interested to see how they fit everyone and what that fit looks like to get a midfield that is, is coherent and cohesive, a front line that taps into the talent that they already have and a defense that has lost its, its leader and captain, which, which was Krieger. So I can't wait to see how the Gotham project works. They're probably going to be disrupted by international play because there are going to be a number of Olympians on that team. Um, but yeah, I think if we're talking about the team that everyone's probably looking at to see what they can do, it is Gotham. And I cannot wait to see how Amaros approaches coming in with perhaps the most talented team in the league, as opposed to a team who did really, really well as a cohesive unit in the postseason after finishing sixth. Another big free agency move that I think I would be remiss not to mention is that Chicago's Casey Kruger also made the move to the Spirit. So we're seeing some teams be really aggressive, right? AFC makes perfect sense. They're a brand new team. They're getting international signings. I like that. I like using that mechanism to get talent rather than being aggressive with expansion drafts or with trades. Gotham cleaned up in free agency. They pretty much picked up every big U.S. Women's National Team free agent on the market. Uh, we've seen Washington have some come in and some come out. And I think they are trying to look very, very different than the team that won the NWSL championship in 2021, which I think they believe sets them up for much more long-term success. If it works, it could be something unlike the NWSL has ever seen. Uh, we are getting close to the beginning, if you can believe it, of the regular season to the NWSL. The new revamp Challenge Cup is coming up on March 15th. That will be between Gotham and San Diego. And then the regular season begins on March 16th. So Stay tuned. There might still be some action in, in the offseason here. There are still some signings that might get finalized. Uh, teams can sign. NWSL teams can sign all the way through the beginning of the season. So stay tuned to that. But I'm incredibly excited for the NWSL season. And I just love that we're talking about it year round because these players deserve it. And it's going to be a great year. So that's that on, on, on the, the, the state of uh, soccer in the United States. We'll probably get some more uh, international talk next week. Um, but NWSL preseason going to be great. And finally, we'll uh, turn over to the WNBA. So going back into preseason mode, let's talk the WNBA a little bit. So unlike the NWSL, the WNBA does go dark a little bit after the finals, which as we know, if everyone is still kind of catching up, the Las Vegas Aces, two-time WNBA champion, we are in the era of the Las Vegas Aces dynasty. I feel very confident saying that. And I think as we get into some of these free agency moves, the aces are always kind of looming over, I think, the decisions that are being made by some of these other teams. We're seeing teams pull talent together to think about how do you compete when the standard has been so set by the Las Vegas aces. We're only a couple days in. Uh, they were uh, Teams in the WNBA were only allowed to announce signings on February 1st, though they've been talking to players for a little bit longer than that. So some of these official signings are coming in a little bit late. Um, things are happening very quickly. So it is possible that some of the things that I'm about to say will be outdated by the time this uh, episode comes out on Wednesday, but hopefully we will be as up to date as possible because we are starting to see again, big picture things come together. One team, I think 
that everyone should keep an eye on is the Seattle Storm. Uh, they had a rough year last year. They lost Sue Bird to retirement. They lost Brianna Stewart to free agency. They committed to building around Jewel Lloyd, who's an incredible player. And we're starting to see that come into fruition here now. Skylar Diggins-Smith, who was possibly the top point guard prospect in free agency, did announce that she is signing with the Seattle Storm. We are also seeing reports. I saw a report specifically from Annie Costabile at the Sun-Times that uh, sources told her that Neka Agwumike is nearing a deal with Seattle. Her top three had been Seattle, New York, and Chicago via ESPN. Looks like she is closing in on making that deal with Seattle. So now we're talking about the Seattle Storm with Lloyd, Diggins-Smith, and Agwumike. That is no longer a rebuild. That is a revamp. The storm are coming for the postseason this year, it looks like. I think another project that's really interesting to look at is what the Phoenix Mercury is doing. They signed former Washington Mystics point guard Natasha Cloud. They also made a number of just good deals, just good deals to rebuild this roster. They're still in the process of re-signing Brittany Griner, though there's no indication that that is not going to happen. Griner considers Phoenix her home. The Mercury, another team, they've got Diana Taurasi back on contract for 2024. They did not make the postseason last year. I do not think that is going to be the goal for this year. I think they want to be back in the mix for that top spot. I think everyone is interested in what the New York Liberty are going to do. As everyone remembers, they kind of put the super team together last year with Brianna Stewart, John Quell Jones, Courtney Vandersloot, Sabrina Ionescu, Benija Laney. They were the team of the offseason last year. They have done the work to retain as, as many of those players as possible. There have been reports that Jones is re-signing with the Liberty. Brianna Stewart was cored by the Liberty, which, as we know, that doesn't always mean that the player is going to sign with that particular team. It could be a sign-and-trade, but Stewie has indicated that she would also like to stay in New York. So what we're seeing with the Liberty is they're talking to top free agents, right? They brought Agumake over. They probably talked about team fit. It's a, it's a crowded starting five on that team. But they want to take that next step, retain that cohesive core that they built last year because they did also discuss a lot about how they didn't necessarily always felt like they had enough time to compete with the chemistry of the Aces, which is exactly what we saw in the finals last year. And so when you look at the larger landscape of the dub, and like I said, we're in the early stages, we don't have all of the answers here, but you see teams are looking at more of a, okay, how are we competing right now? And then you have teams who are looking at more of a long-term future. I think with, we did this big A block on college basketball. We talked about Caitlin Clark, the fever, the Indiana fever who have the number one pick in the draft. This is the second year in a row. They've had the number one pick in the WNBA draft. They signed Aliyah Boston last year with that pick. The hope. And I think this is like, this is just me as a basketball fan. The hope is that Caitlin Clark makes the jump and then we'll see Clark in Boston in Indiana next year. And that is a team that is is building slowly. They still did not make the playoffs last year despite getting that number one pick. But I like the young core that they're building there. That is going to be a fun team to watch, whether they win a ton of games or not. For Vegas, they've got a lot of players already under contract. I think the big piece for them is they did sign Candace Parker last year for one year. Parker lost a, a, a significant amount of the season due to injury. Parker has not signed with anyone yet in free agency this year, but she has indicated that as long as her body feels up for it, she would like to play another year. Really curious to see if that looks like a re-signing with the Aces, run it back. They were pretty unstoppable. They were, to be fair, they were pretty unstoppable without her last year too, but 
But when she was on the court, no one could keep up with them. Really interested to see if they go back to that well this year or if they're looking at um, different options for backups. Um, and so I think the final thought here, it's a little bit less, like I said, we're in the early days for the dub, but teams are figuring out, and I, this is, again, this is just my, my perception of the league, but you have four playoff spots. You got 12 teams. There are teams that historically want to see themselves in that top four conversation in those top seed conversations. I think we can look at the aces there. They are going to pretty much run it back. I think the aces are still the team to beat. I think you look at the Liberty. They also look like a team to beat they They've retained that core. They're going to try to take that next step this year. We'll see if that works. I think you see the storm uh, suddenly are, are back in that conversation after losing a lot of talent last year, which is very impressive by their front office. Um, and then you have sort of these perennial contenders of, you know, the mystics uh, historically have done quite well, but they are going to have to pick some pieces together. There's some questions of whether or not Elena De La Don is re- is returning to the mystics or not. They obviously did let cloud go. And then on this lower tier, you know, you have Dallas, they've got a, they've got a project that they're building. They've re-signed us uh, Sabali for another year. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to see who takes that next step. You've got the Atlanta dream. I'm like (laughs) rattling off all the teams, the Atlanta dream who signed Jordan Canada. They've got something very cool that they're building there. So everyone is chasing Vegas, but I think there's a lot of intrigue to come from that middle tier of the WNBA. And so I'm excited to see how things continue, continue to build, to continue to build there. So early days of the dub, we got some movement. And then just some final wrap-up things here. Um, a couple of things that I want to shout out getting ready for next week. Uh, the U.S. Women's National Team will be announcing their Gold Cup roster this week. Like I said, it could be out by the time this comes out. We will get more into the larger state of the U.S. Women's National Team next week. They took some time off in January, which is not something that they do often. So they've, they've been in a little bit of an off-season since, since, since November. So... That's been an impressively long time to kind of sit on how the U.S. is doing. And then the one other league I did want to shout out briefly is the PWHL, the Professional Women's Hockey League, which launched on January 1st, 2024, um, has been a rousing success so far. They've set record attendance numbers multiple times. Really good games. Uh, you know, I got to shout out. I'm, I'm a lifelong Midwesterner. I'm, I'm shouting out PWHL Minnesota. That's my team this year. Um, but I think if you can get a chance to check out the PWHL, they, they broadcast on YouTube and they also have some local deals that has been incredibly exciting. I think people have been waiting to hopefully see a stable home for the professional game in North America for some time. And PWHL is delivering. So that's all the news of the week and actually beyond, but I want to end with this. I want to end with one final thought. I'm trying this as a kicker. Like I said, it's it's episode one. We're going to be trying some stuff out. We're going to see what works, see what doesn't. But maybe just something to leave, a, a food for thought for for, for fans to, to leave with going into next week. Probably when we come back, we will still not have, Caitlin Clark will still not have broken that record. It'll be surprising to see if it happens before um, that second, third week of February. But I really liked what, Kelsey Plum had to say about the record this week. She was speaking to Michael Vopel at ESPN, um, just asking for a thought about what it means to watch a player like Clark beat that record. And 
She said, I'm actually very grateful to pass that baton. Very happy for her. She says, I remember, to be honest, the record itself was a low point in my life. I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but she said it felt like a lot of pressure. My identity was kind of caught up in that record. I hope everyone in the media takes time to understand that Clark is not just a basketball player, but also a young woman that has feelings and emotions. She carries it with grace, but there's a lot to handle there. If anything, make sure that we show her love outside her performance. She'll break it. I'm excited for her. And I think Plum's perspective is obviously a really good one because she just went through this. I mean, it's not like this is ancient history. Kelsey Plum did this in 2017. And then she went number one in the WNBA draft. And it took her a couple of years to kind of find her way as the Aces built this larger project of that they've grown into this incredible team that you see today. That 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 project wasn't done in a year. Um, and I think the perspective is a good one because I think Clark's rising status has been incredibly good for women's basketball. It's been really good for women's sports. But I was joking earlier in the show about it sort of breaking containment where there's maybe misinformation about um, how much money she's making or how she runs through a system or what that system is going to look like in the pros or what her, where her mind is at about going pro or people who, you know, are, are speaking for whether or not she wants to move on to that next level or whether she should stay in, in college basketball. And those kinds of conversations are what make the sports world go round. And it's so good for women's sports that we're having those conversations around Clark. But I am interested in that main one of what does Caitlin Clark WNBA player look like? And I think we could see her do incredible things. I, I doubt she's going to be probably at the uh, season average points per game that she's at now. That just doesn't happen in the dub. But she's a good passer. She's got good fundamentals. She's going to find a way to make that work when she goes. Um, and so I think the story of Kelsey Plum, which was that she got a little bit lost in this pursuit of the record, and it actually impacted her first year or two in the WNBA, is one for Clark to learn from and one for all of us to learn from. Because... I, as I said, we've got a new guard coming in, in, in basketball, and these are going to be big stars. These are going to be massive basketball stars going into the WNBA. And we got to remind ourselves that they're people first and they're kids and uh, not place too many expectations on what's going to happen in the future. And I think that's true across the board. So that has been the first episode of the late sub. Thank everybody for listening. You guys probably have, I've mentioned it multiple times. If you would like uh, more women's sports news in your inbox. You can subscribe to the Just Women's Sports newsletter. I'm so thankful that we're being able to take this into the podcast realm. I'm really, really excited. I can't wait to get deeper, get into the weeds, talking about the things that people care about and talking to some of the people that people care about eventually as well. So thanks everyone for tuning in, whether you found this because you have listened to JWS podcasts before or you're familiar with the other news work that we do. I appreciate y'all for listening. Stick with us as we kind of figure out the best way to do this, but hopefully this has been illuminating and I cannot wait to see you all back next week.